Romans chapter 2. The help of the Lord tonight, we're going to try our best to finish the final thought from Romans 2. It's going to require a little bit of digging on your own, but uh, I think it'll be the best way for us to finish this chapter before we get to Thanksgiving and Christmas. There are two verses we're going to focus on heavily tonight, and only two of those. Uh, but the theme here is the same. We did a great job last week. We were able to get, the week before rather, we were able to get all the way through verse 11. Um, the past week and a half or so, I've really gone back and forth with a verse that we're going to read here in a moment and really wanting to understand what the Lord has for us here and uh, what we have found is a vast treasure. And I won't pretend for five minutes to be able to get all of this out and how wonderful it is, how powerful it is. But if we'll allow the Lord to help us tonight, I think there's something here that will really encourage us and kind of put a wrap on this chapter. We've got to remember a few things. Who's writing, who he's writing to, who the audience is, what they believe and why they believe it. You've got to ask yourself these questions when you're reading these verses. You've got to remember who it is that's writing this and why he's writing it. It's the Apostle Paul writing to the church, the baby Christians in Rome. Let's go to verse number 17. Again, we're going to do something we've not done much. We're going to skip ahead just a, a tad here. The theme here that the Apostle Paul is writing to these Jews, to these new converts, these Christians in Rome, has to do with the Jew and their knowledge of the law. Their knowledge of the law. You've got to take that with you for the rest of tonight's sermon. We've got to keep in mind the Jews' knowledge of the law. Okay? And then we are going to see three things. We're going to take 17 through 24. We're going to focus on 23 and 24. But there's three things I want us to absolutely be honed in on tonight. Number one is Paul's condemnation of the Jew. Paul's condemnation of the Jew. And remember we talked about this last time we were in Romans together. Paul loves the Jew. Remember that. You've got to remember what the Apostle Paul was prior to his conversion. His name wasn't even Paul. It was what? Saul. Paul, who loves the Jew, but we're going to look at his condemnation of the Jew. Secondly, we're going to look at God's expectation of the Jew and of his people. God's expectation of the Jew and of his people. The curse of the law and the desperate need of the Redeemer. That's the third thing we'll look at. The curse of the law and the desperate need of the Redeemer. Verse number 17, the Apostle Paul's writing, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, 
He's saying, you think of yourself a guide. He goes on to verse number 20 and says, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth in law. Thou therefore, which teacheth another, teachest thou not thyself? Get a hold of what he's saying there. Thou therefore, which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal, he asks? Thou that saith a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege, he asks? And here you go. Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, Dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, for just a few minutes, God, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be clear of anything else. Lord, I pray that the words would jump off the page and into our hearts. God, help it to make sense to every person that's here. Open our ears, our eyes, our understanding. Hide me behind the cross. Lord, I pray that Jesus will be lifted up. It's in his name we pray together. Amen and amen. For just a few minutes, we're gonna dive into this. Number one, Paul's condemnation of the Jew whom he loved, which I think is important to keep in context. Verse 23, he says, Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law. Let's get the law into perspective. It's very important. Stay with me now. God will bless us through this. The law is perfect. The law is wonderful. The law in its infancy, in its very beginnings, in the face of Abraham, had great glory. The law in its infancy had great glory to the Jew. But as time goes on, as the face of Abraham faded, so did the glory of the law. And by the time we get to these Jews in this time that are living in Paul's days, these Jews here are the same Sadducees and the same Pharisees who sat in the synagogue where Jesus had pity and mercy on a man with a withered hand. And rather than showing one ounce of compassion they with their wicked hearts condemn Christ for healing the man. These were the same people, full of pride, in love with the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And Paul is condemning them because of their perversion of what God had made holy and righteous. They were more in love with the tradition of the elders than they were with God himself. They were more in love with the fact that they knew what the truth was and that they possessed it and that the Gentile pagan dog did not than they actually loved God himself. And rather than looking to God and looking to his holiness and realizing their inability, they elevated themselves to a place of imperfection within their interpretation of the law. Paul says you make boast of the law, 
by breaking the law. Paul is saying, law keepers, you're actually law breakers. You are law breakers. And these are those same people, the Sadducees that deny the supernatural, the Pharisees that deny the working of God. These are they that sat in that same synagogue that denied the compassion that Christ had for the man with the withered hand. These are the same that tormented those that were blind and maimed. These were they that had something against Christ. These are the same people. But Paul knows what it's like to be who they are. Paul remembers what it was to have letters in hand to go to Damascus to find Christians, to imprison them, and to bring them back to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul is writing this in a place of love, but of a great condemnation because Paul knows what it means to be right where they are. He is familiar with their heart and their way of thinking. Remember, this man, the Apostle Paul, is absolutely brilliant. He's a master mind of study and composition and language and the law itself. He would have been one of the most formidable minds and voices of what the law means and interpreting the law prior to his conversion on the Damascus Road. Paul knows everything that these men know and how they believe. And he condemns them for the way they mishandled the law in the first place. They've got it all out of order. So number one, you see Paul's condemnation of the Jew. Secondly, I want you to see God's expectation of the Jew, of his people. God's expectation of the Jew and of his people. You see, you've got to remember who we're talking to. We're talking to Jews. We're talking to baby Christians and we're talking to the Jews that surrounded them in Rome. God had made a covenant with Israel. He had chosen them. The Jews were the apple of his eye. God had made a promise with the Hebrew children, with the Jew. He told Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. I will uphold thee. I will make thee great. I will give you land. And I will provide a redeemer through the bloodline that I've sovereignly selected. But here's what the Jew forgot when he got possession of the law. To whom much is given, much is required. You see, the law was never intended to be what the Jew made the law. As we said, when the law was given in the face of Abraham, in its infancy, the law was pure, the law was glorious, but as the face of Abraham faded, so did the glory of the law, not because of God's glory fading, but because of man's mishandling of the holy things. God did not mess this up. Man messed this up. The law was never supposed to be about how hard you can work to get to heaven. The law was never to be about how many times you can pray a particular prayer or how many of the shalls and the shall nots you can keep. It was never supposed to be any of this. The law was supposed to be the loud shout in the wilderness that man, though he may try, would come to an understanding that he could never live up 
to the letter of the law. That he would come to the realization that no matter how hard I try, no matter how good I try to be, at the end of the day, I will never be able to keep the law. It was not supposed to become a religious working action. Rather, it was supposed to be something that would point to the desperate need of mankind for grace and for mercy. The law was perfect and it was never supposed to be what the Jew made it. God's law was too perfect. God's law was too holy. The point was not that the Jew was to keep it. It was that the Jew would come to the realization that he couldn't keep it. God, even in his grace and mercy to them that were not under the dispensation of grace, allowed them to come to a temple, come and offer sacrifice for redemption of sin, for cleansing. But the Jew dropped the ball. They broke the chain of custody. It became more about what they could accomplish in their own self-righteousness rather than how desperate they were for God. Go back into the Kings and read about the mishandling of the nation, about the mishandling of the holy things of God, about the idol worship, the pagan worship, the generational falling away from God. They had Elijah, they had Elisha, and yet they still had a problem with disobedience and outright idolatry. You see, when you take God out of the equation and you make it about yourself, something nasty will come from that. You cannot entertain yourself as God and pilot of your plane, of your life, and him be in some sort of juxtaposed co-pilot seat. Either God is at the forefront of your life or he is not. You can't have it both ways. You can't live for God on certain days and not live for God on these other days because of the inconvenience that it brings. Either someone is sold out living for God or they're not, there is no gray area. The Jew and his condition is the perfect example. He can pray, he can give, he can do all the things according to the law, keep as many of them as they can, but at the end of the day, he cannot keep it because it's too perfect. The law came from God and man can't keep it. They dropped the ball. Look what he says in verse number 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. This is what got me for the last two weeks. Last two weeks, been mulling this in my heart. Through you, those two words. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, but then he blames or he points to the reason or how God is being blasphemed. How are the Gentiles coming to this moment of blasphemy? Through you. You, you had the truth. You had the knowledge. The covenant and the promise was made with you. And now when the Gentile looks at you, they see something that's irregular and not of God. And when the Gentiles blaspheme God, they do it because of your conduct, because they know who you are. It's just like when King David sent Bathsheba's husband Uriah to war. He told Joab to take Uriah to the hottest battle, the worst fighting. He tells him to send him there and then retreat from him. 
leave him there, put him in the hottest fighting zone and then run the other direction and leave Uriah to die because he had a thing for his wife, Bathsheba. And King David, who was fighting in the name of Jehovah God, the God of his forefathers, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then for his own filthy lusts, sends the husband of his mistress to be killed so he doesn't have to look Uriah in the face and tell him what he's done. And in the face of the enemy, God's man, the king, the man in charge, sins openly and egregiously and God knows that the enemy is watching Israel strand one of its own as they fight in the name of Jehovah God. And David, what he does not realize is that him stranding Uriah, it's not just about his sin and his flesh and his pride, but it blasphemed the name of God. It dishonored what they were fighting for. And God said, David, because you blaspheme me publicly, I will judge you openly and it'll cost you family members. The blasphemy of the Gentile comes through you, the Apostle Paul tells these Jews. It's your fault. It's on your hands. You were the ones who possessed the truth. And Paul is pointing to the fact that the Gentile world so needed the Jew. Think of it. The apple of his eye. The covenant, the promise, and God's expectations of them. Can you imagine if Isaiah 53 wasn't in scripture, that he was despised and rejected of his own people. If the Jew would have just simply opened their eye to the fact that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, we wouldn't have to even have this conversation. But they despised him, they reject him. And even though he had great expectations and great love, they failed him. This is a great reminder for us as Christians that the only Bible that some people will ever get to hear is the way you live your life in front of them. Do you hear what I said? Some people will never open up a Bible. But they do know that you're a Christian and that you claim Christ and that you come to church and the way you live your life in front of them will be the only Bible will be the only Jesus that they'll ever have reference to. And so what does it do when Christians who have been given the truth, the responsibility and the weight of all that's been given to us from Christ, what does it do when we say the same words as our lost friends at work do? We'll cuss openly. We'll drink the same drinks at the same bar. We'll listen to the same filthy music, discuss the same filthy TV shows, and we're claiming Christ as Lord and Savior. And what we're actually doing is dishonoring the name that we claim, and it's causing a rift between that person and what's true and what's right, and it puts a blockade in their heart for even God himself. And God's blasphemed. He's dishonored. You claim Jesus, you better live it in front of lost people because God will hold you accountable. If you want to sin, do it secretly. Don't let somebody else see it. Then you deal with it with God. 
You dishonor God openly and he will dishonor you publicly. This turns the world away from God to hear a supposed Christian be not a Christian. And what happens is we become the excuse for their conduct. We become the excuse. You see, listen to me now. This is in love. The human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all, according to who? Jeremiah. God spoke to his prophet Jeremiah and said, the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all. What does the human heart look for when it sins? It looks for justification. And if someone is around you that knows you claim Christ as Lord and Savior and you live like a dog in front of them, then what will come to their heart and their mind when the natural law of judgment comes to their heart and they know what they're getting ready to do is wrong, where will they find their source of justification for their sin? In you. Paul told the Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles and then he doesn't point back to the Gentiles, he points back to the Jew, the ones that possess the truth. The Jews had the responsibility of the truth, the covenants and the privileges, and you have the responsibility of the truth as it pertains to Christ. You have a responsibility to Christ, the covenant that he made with you when he saved you, then the privileges that he gave you with eternal life. You know, the truth is a man that loves his wife does not have to wear a shirt that says, I love my wife. He doesn't have to wear that shirt. He can just simply love her out loud with his actions, the way he talks about her, the way he treats her in front of other people. A responsibility because of the expectation that God has on his people. God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. My heart was smote when I read this and I thought of all the times, all the places that I had an opportunity to share the good news because of a cowardly heart that's afraid of retribution or afraid of not fitting in or being an outcast because I stand for what's right. All the times I could have looked at another fireman or another paramedic or a drunk or a drug abuser in the back of an ambulance on the way to the hospital. God smote my heart with the souls I could have been different towards. The words I could have said. But like a coward, our hearts turn we go away from the truth. In the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. We have a responsibility with our lives and how we handle the truth. Number three, the curse of the law. It sounds like that doesn't fit. The curse of the law, the desperate need of the Redeemer. The law is good. The law is perfect. And think of this. This will help you understand when we say the law. The law is what you could not do. The law is what you could not keep. But the law is exactly what Jesus Christ lived out on this earth and kept perfectly. He kept the law. 
sinless, perfect every day of his earthly ministry. Praise God, Jesus Christ came and he lived and became flesh and he kept the law. He kept the law. He did what I couldn't do. He never once broke the rule. He was absolutely perfect. And because he kept it, church, we are made the righteousness of God in him. Because he kept it. You see, I could not keep the law, but Jesus did. And he loved me enough to allow me to participate in his perfection that came through Calvary. Galatians 3, 12 through 14, it says, and the law is not of faith. If you're a student of the word of God, I hope you're making notes because this is deep and it's rich and it'll take the rest of our lives. We'll never be satisfied with all of this. Get hungry for this stuff. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us From the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, he became sin that knew no sin. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through who? Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Gentiles that did not deserve a seat at the table through Christ we're allowed we're redeemed that word redeemed there in the Greek it actually means specifically buying a slave and all of his debts buying a slave and all of his debts Christ's death because it was a death of substitution for sin satisfied God's justice and exhausted his wrath towards his elect so that Christ actually purchased believers from slavery to sin and from the sentence of eternal death. The law can condemn. The law brings guilt It brings anguish. It brings disappointment. The law can condemn, but the law cannot redeem. The law delivered me the list of my inadequacies. The law delivered to me the list of my shortcomings and my inability to keep it. But grace delivered the Redeemer. The law delivered condemnation, but grace delivered the Redeemer. It purchased me when I had no value and it set me free from sin. And through the Holy Ghost, he wooed me, he called me, and he made me his own. The law condemned, but grace sent the Redeemer. If you're saved in here tonight, say amen. amen. There was a woman married to a man and the man's name was Law. Law leaves for work every day. He leaves a list of 10 do's and 10 don'ts for his wife. When he comes home from work, the husband named Law, he inspects every inch of the house. He takes his wife on a tour and he inspects every inch of that house. The law, the husband, he looked for absolute perfection 
in this wife's home. He demanded it every single day, every hour, every minute, every day of her life. But Law never told his wife, I love you. Law never said thank you to his wife. You see, there was no romance, no passion. This marriage was nothing more than a binding contract and never a marriage built on love. But one day, the husband named Law, well, he died. And the woman, she remarried a man, a new husband, and his name was Grace. And every day, the husband named Grace would do the same thing and leave for work. Except when he left the house, he would never leave without kissing his wife and saying goodbye. And just like law, he would leave. But the only difference was he would kiss her goodbye and he would not leave a list. Law left a list of do's and don'ts. Grace said, I love you, goodbye, I'll see you later. And left no list. But this woman, she was so in love with Grace, she decided even though he didn't leave the list, I'm gonna continue to do what I used to do for law. And I'm gonna do all the do's and I'm gonna keep all the don'ts. And then when Grace gets home, he walks through the door with a big smile on his face. He puts his bag at the door. He runs up to his wife to kiss her and to hug her. But instead of inspection, all she gets is love. He says, I love you. Thank you for doing what you've done. And when Jesus came by my way, grace and mercy opened up the front door. He knocked like a gentleman. And he said, Winston, I'm here and I love you. And I'll save you, I'll redeem you, I will purchase you just as you are. And you can live under grace. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you. Things could have been different for our kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jew. But now Christ has come. He's gone to the cross. He's resurrected himself in power. The Holy Ghost of God, the comforter and the convictor is here. And we live under the dispensation of grace. You've got to understand just how blessed you are to know who Jesus is. And even more importantly, that he would know who you are. He could have left me broken, destitute, and bound for hell and left me right where I was and still been God. But because he loved me, because of grace and mercy, I've got a different story to tell. Here's the weight that we should feel in these two verses. Our conduct as people. His expectation for us. Church, we have been preaching through this. These first 20 messages in Romans, we're just now coming to the, the last part of chapter 2. And it's all been condemnation. It's all been condemnation. The good part's coming. Romans is absolutely rich. Justification, sanctification, that's coming. I can't wait till we get to Romans 8 and 9. Cannot wait. 
But in these seasons of condemnation that we're going through verse by verse, you can't look at it as a safe person and look at it as a lost person. You are looking at God's judgment, his wrath, and his anger towards sin on this side of being saved. If you're here and you're lost, you're undone, you're not saved, then you're looking at it with a different perspective as someone who's not a son, a daughter in the faith. And there you will find terror. It's horrible. If eternity is a question mark for you and the Holy Ghost of God has been wooing you and drawing you and you know you're lost, but pride is keeping you in your place of pain. This might be the night you realize just how important eternity is and that you would cast all your care upon him, that you would run to him and that you would respond to the call on your life. If God's dealing with you, don't simply brush it away. If he's wooing you, if he's drawing you, if he's dealing with your sin, if you're convicted three or four times now at the end of these messages on Romans, what are supposed to be expository nights through the word of God, God's challenged my heart in the last part of the sermon to ask if someone here needs to be saved. Here's the truth. I can't save you. I can't save you. I can't open your eyes and I can't make you see Christ. But he can the Holy Ghost of God can and he can hunt you down and he can save you right where you are. And if you're here tonight, you're under conviction, you're lost, you're undone, my prayer is this, that food begins to taste horrible, that your pillow is a place of no rest and no comfort, and that the Holy Ghost of God will squeeze you, pressure you, and persuade you into faith. It's my prayer for you tonight. I don't want anyone in this room to miss heaven. Look at the law, look at its perfection and realize that you cannot keep it. No matter how good you are, no matter how many candles you light, no matter how many prayers you recite, no matter how much money you give to the church, no matter how many times you come in this building, if you're lost and you're undone, call upon the name of Jesus and in faith believe and he'll do his part. Holy Father in Jesus' name, now we ask, Lord, humbly as we know how, Lord, to take these verses and change our lives. God, help us to see things more clearly. God, give us a hunger and a desire for the word of God like we've never had before. God, I pray that you'd help me grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I want to grow up in the word. Lord, I don't want to stay a babe. I want more meat. I want you to help me. Open my eyes. Open my heart. God, change me. Start with me. Mold me, make me, shape me. Put me in the fire, God, and make me the shape that you want me to be. I want to be pliable in your hands. Lord, I thank you for this church family. Lord, I thank you for the ones that are hungry for the power of God to fall. Lord, I thank you for the prayer that Miss Donna Rue prayed this morning. God, how my heart's encouraged that the saints of God are still praying. Lord, for these ladies that meet faithfully behind the curtains to pray. Lord, I pray that you'd honor them, give them a burden to pray more. God, I pray that you would call more people to pray with fervency, tenacity, and power. Anoint and call more men to be faithful to pray, to lead their families in the way of the word. God, do it for your glory. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Lord, thank you for his willingness to write 
God, the way that he wrote, the truth that he wrote, and for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that penned each word. God, I believe every word of my Bible tonight to be true, inerrant, infallible, holy, and inspired, and able to change lives. We thank you for our time together on this beautiful campus you've given us today. Be with every heart and every life. In Jesus' name we pray.